This podcast is brought to you by VinZero. VinZero pioneers solutions and services to the AEC and manufacturing industries to support net zero targets. Visit VinZero.com to learn more about how organisations design, build and solve through digitalisation. From VinZero to you, welcome to our Think Future podcast series. Each week we'll share conversations with industry leaders from around the world to find out how they're thinking future. Subscribe to VinZero Think Future for access to more episodes, interviews and profiles. George Chapper is the Chief Impact Officer at Green Building Council Australia, driving the strategic priorities, partnerships, products and services, including Green Star, to accelerate the transformation of Australia's built environment. He chairs the World Green Building Council's Global Commitment for Net Zero Carbon Buildings Task Force and the World Green Building Council's ESG Working Group, amongst others. And today, he joins us to provide insights into the World Green Building Council's recently released Circularity Playbook for the Built Environment. Welcome to the program, George. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. George, the Australian Green Building Council has played a key role in the development of the Circularity Playbook with the World Green Building Council and their select industry stakeholders. Before we delve into the detail of this recently released playbook, can you provide a definition of circularity as it relates to the built environment? Certainly. Uh, I mean, the idea of circularity is uh, its essentially a framework, right? It's a way of thinking. And the principle behind it is that it's uh, trying to ex- both extend the life of buildings that already exist, but also make sure that we can reuse them or repurpose them in a way that enables for what is known as a circular way of economy. Instead of having a linear economy of uh, extract that then gets used and goes all the way to waste, we have a circular economy, which effectively tries to say any materials that are already out there should not be sent to waste. They should be repurposed and reused and maximized in terms of the capacity uh, for those materials to uh, achieve their purpose as long as possible. And any new materials or any new activity that you do, keep that principle in mind. It should always be about trying to make sure that whatever decision you make or whatever you create or whatever you do is always with the principle of a regenerative sort of cycle. Uh, And that's the intention. And so when you think about a building, it is really about how do you create buildings that can essentially be used forever, or if you have an existing asset that you can redevelop it with as little waste as possible. And also on the other side, with as few virgin materials as possible as well. So what were some of the key findings that surfaced during the process of collaboration for this work? One of the key things that we found as we were working through the the playbook, and and it's something that's been repeated all throughout the world, right? We're all starting to grapple with what it means to be circular. And so the big thing that we found was a lot of people are working on it. We have everything, for instance, from the the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which really kickstarted this movement, uh, to WBCSD, who are also trying to set up circularity indicators. Uh, Ourselves, we did a discussion paper and a bit of a research project in terms of circularity in Australia. Everyone is working on trying to define what circularity is. And I think there's now a bit of a, uh, a consensus that this is something that we have to do now, 
uh, we're, we're starting to see pressures from other sectors that are saying, look, the use of resources is going on indiscriminately. We really have to figure out how to work with what we have better. Uh, so now we're moving into a situation where we have to measure things. And that's where the difficulties are happening. We have things like GreenStar, which are trying to introduce or embed circular uh, indicators into the rating tool and into the development of new buildings and into the operations of buildings. But we don't have agreed standards. So there's a lot of work to do. We need to get better at it. Even, I mean, we could talk about circularity and you and I can talk about circularity and we will during this podcast, but there's still a lot of people that aren't quite agreeing or there isn't a consensus of how to define it properly and how to manage it. And is it about waste or is it about the resources? So plenty of work. I would say that we're probably where we were say 15 years ago in the question of greenhouse gas emissions and carbon accounts and so on. But what we expect is that if it took us say uh, 10, 15 years to get to the idea that we have to get to net zero emissions, we're going to do that in about half the time when it comes to circularity. I would expect that this is something that will have to be resolved very quickly. And that's broadly speaking what the report says. On the 10th of May, the work of the Circularity Accelerator Program was released globally as the Circular Built Environment Playbook. How will this playbook help industry? I think the key thing is that it provides a global state of the market. It shows the state of the amount of work that is going on in industry. It is also trying to translate this idea of uh, a very global sort of high-level framework. You know, it sounds very easy to say, uh, go into a circular economy uh, mode and shift your thinking from linear to circular. It's the type of thing that you can say, but translating that into business practices and translating that into design solution and into what does it mean when you own an asset or you're trying to develop an asset, that's the thing that this document really brings to life. It really showcases great examples of projects that are actively uh, pushing the boundary on trying to understand how to apply the framework of circularity into a building. Uh, there's a couple of cases from Australia. There's a number of cases from Europe. Uh, there's also a conversation about the tools that might exist to do this and also a way of, of thinking about issues differently. Like one of the questions that we get asked a lot is when it comes to thinking about products and materials, which is why do we focus on certain things? And one of the, the say, for instance, toxicity in products. And this shows that, like the document kind of outlines that the question of toxic materials is not just a health problem, but it's also a resource problem because you can't get rid of them easily or you can't repurpose them if you know that they're toxic. So you end up in all of these situations. That's an example of one of the elements that the paper discusses. So what were some of the challenges to circularity for our built environment in general terms that came out of this report? The big one tends to be there's very little reason to do it. And what I mean by that is, as a general rule, no one goes into a building and says, I'm going to occupy it because it is a fully circular building. It might be a great marketing hook and it's something to talk about, but there's no inherent benefit to the person occupying the building because it'll stand up the same way as the building next door. So the business case for circularity as a general rule historically has been very weak. What's happening, though, is that there's now being a lot more pressures being put in place on supply chains. There's also, I think, a question about the social license to operate, where people are really asking themselves, why are you tearing down perfectly fine buildings? And there's also the question of regulation that might prevent you. Uh, there's a, a lack of understanding of the materials that might be in the building and the uh, genuine dearth of information that does not exist. Those are the key ones that people highlight as how do we create that circularity in buildings when, as a general rule, 
uh, it's just hard to justify. It is a lot of work to do this, or at least right now it is a lot of work to do this, and it's difficult to justify the action. That will change though. I think the paper also does a great job at showing that there are genuine benefits from a cost perspective and a value perspective that might start getting past that business case issue, but also that there are other pressures external that are not necessarily related to the occupant of the building, but say to the investor that's driving the building or from a regulation perspective that are going to force people to go down this path. And this document is highlighting that you really should get onto that beat. One of the other big challenges, and, and you know, I've spoken about the business case, but one of the other big challenges that we see is how do you actually literally do it, right? So it sounds again, very easy to say, I have an existing building, uh, how do I repurpose it? How do I recover it with minimum investment? How do I make it to recover the elements that are valuable in those structures and in those services and repurpose them? Buildings tend to be built to last for a long time. And that's great, but how do we also make it so that they can be repurposed in 60 years time? Right now, we tend to think of circularity as something that we have to deal with right now, but a lot of the decisions as to whether you can take something apart and reuse it were actually made 60 years ago, for example. Uh, you don't think of that problem usually in a lot of things that you use, but in buildings, the fact that a building was built, say, in concrete and use a certain facade elements and so on, means the decision for how you recover those materials was made when that building was assigned. Uh, it could be uh, 60 or 70 or 100 years ago. So the thing to think about isn't just so much how do I recover or how do I deal with the problem of the building that I have right now or, or the building that I might be trying to redevelop or how to manage the waste streams that are coming out of the building that I'm having to demolish or, or repair or anything like that, but also to think about how do you set up so that in 50, 60 years time or in 10 years time, if it's a fit out, the entity that will have to deal with that problem doesn't have to face with the same issue you are having to deal with right now. Because we didn't used to think about that problem when people ask me about circularity. And we had a, a tenant come to us. And it's a big tenant, right? A corporate tenant. And they were redoing their office fit out. And they asked us, what metrics should we introduce? And specifically, they were saying, what recycling metrics we should introduce so that when we uh, when we get rid of the current fit out, we can say, well, we're going to aim for like 80% recycling. And we sort of said, look, yeah, 80% recycling, that's great. That's a good target, but that's the wrong target to focus on. Uh, what we said is you need to think about what does it look like in 10 years when you come back and ask me the same question, wouldn't you want that to be 100%? So what does 100% recoverability look like? That is the question you need to be asking yourself. In addition to what does it look like today? And it's that small mindset shift that we need to go through. What we're highlighting in this report is you are now responsible not just for what you do right now, but you're responsible for what happens in 60 years time at the end of life. And that's a new way of thinking. So you just mentioned there that we need to be approaching with a different mindset and thinking about what does 100% recoverability look like in 60 years' time? So if we take a, a typical office fit-out, what would be some of the elements of a 100% um, recoverable? It's a great question. We're actually dealing with the problem right now, right? So um, when you ask the question of in 10 years' time, how do we recover a fit-out? Uh, the, the, the team here is literally trying to figure out how to set what those parameters look like. But we know of some stuff. 
right? And we've already moved to a degree to some of these ideas. We rarely in an office fit out that you have like roll carpet, right? You have carpet tiles. They're easier to recover definitionally. We're starting to see things like lighting as a service so that it's not you owning the lights and then having to figure out what to do with them at the end of life, but rather say um, the lighting company uh, coming in and taking responsibility for those aspects of the lights when they stop working or they need to be replaced and so on. And there's also the question about modularity. So thinking more in modular ways is helpful. Uh, the more bespoke things that you have to do, the more likely that you have things that can't be repurposed as a general rule. Or there are things that you need to glue or you need to do things to them that make it really hard to recover. You also have to pay really good attention about the things that you bring in on a site. So look at trying to dematerialize the amount of stuff that you're bringing in. Try not to have as many finishes as you'd like or try to minimize those bits. Natural materials tend to perform better from a reusability perspective or from a recoverability perspective than um, highly processed materials as well. Uh, look for durable surfaces that can also be repaired easily. And those are kind of two different ideas that you need to be thinking about those elements. You, need, you do want to have fit outs that will last you more than typical. And so if you have a table, you want the table to last longer than five years, for example, and you also need to be able to repair it so that it's modular and, and et cetera, et cetera. The other element is how the relationship of the fit out with the base building. Uh, it's very common to see make good clauses. We do need to get rid of them. Those are artificially creating and generating waste that we really shouldn't be having to do. When the fit out leaves, going back and recarpeting everything and putting all of the ceiling back in place the way it was, it sounds like something that is to you taking good responsibility of the fit out and it's true, but there could have been an opportunity for the next fit out owner to come in and say, actually, I like what's here. I'll just keep it or I can keep some of that stuff. So there are a lot of options that you can do. There's a lot of techniques that are being developed. There's a lot of modular frameworks and modular furniture solutions that are coming on the market. And there's also the opportunity to use secondhand furniture as well. So again, lots of ideas. Um, I think uh, the idea of you being able to have a 100% recoverable fit out, it sounds really difficult, uh, but it's actually not as far-fetched as it looks like. So I, I do think we have a lot of techniques to achieve them, but it is about you setting that out from the beginning. It's really hard to retrofit after the fact. There's some really practical considerations there. So how do we start to move towards that shift in thinking required, for example, with that really good point you made there about removal of the make good clause? Where is that movement going to come from? There's a, a number of places where that's coming from. We are seeing the building owners recognizing that they have a responsibility for the waste that's generated because of the fit-out churn. There are practices being put in place in Australia around that. For example, a Better Buildings Partnership from the City of Sydney created the Green Leasing Principles that had the deprecation of make good clauses. Our very own Green Star Rating Tool is desperately trying to say, please knock it off, uh, essentially, and highly rewarding that and creating that as a value element. And I think as more and more people do this and we change the expectation for what it means to go into a space that is not made good and that that's okay, that's a good thing. So it's a little bit of time from GVCA's perspective, we want to get to a point where we're effectively saying that we can translate the idea of make good clauses and turn them into a bad thing to do. And getting to that point in, the, in this decade, that would be an ideal goal. And that's just an example, right, of one thing that we think is worth doing. There's other 
tendencies and trajectories that we'd like to aim for. We do think that there will be an expectation from the regulation that might start looking at the amount of waste being generated. I think we saw a statistic that was something from UTS that was 30% of all waste uh, coming out of a typical office uh, was just feed out churn, which is mind boggling. That's a lot of waste. And so you can start seeing that there's a likelihood of saying, hey, we really need to start clamping down on this because it's a lot. So it will happen. I think there's now a lot of pressure being put into that. Uh, and it's just a matter of turning it into a, why are we doing this situation? Are you looking for a digitalization and net zero partner to help you achieve your goals? Join the thousands of AEC and manufacturing customers globally who have turned to VinZero to start their journey toward a net zero future. With 32 offices around the world, VinZero can connect you to the right technologies and workflow processes so you can maintain your competitive position and increase profitability. Vinzero has an industry expert to help you navigate the best pathway forward wherever you are on your digitalization and net zero journey. Visit vinzero.com to find out more. So can we talk a bit more about the built environment incorporating the strategies that are described like these within the report across its supply chain within new and existing assets? How does that look at a practical level? Oh, man, that is an incredibly big question, right? Like, how do we turn the supply chain more circular? It's a big question. The first thing that we know, the supply chain itself is adjusting. So the supply chain is starting to come to people and saying, hey, I don't sell you light, I sell you lighting. Let me manage the process. So the idea of a product as a service is something that's gaining traction for a lot of things. And we're seeing it for lighting. That was the first uh, sort of big idea that we started seeing, especially in Europe. Um, but we're also now seeing it in terms of like air conditioning systems. So uh, heating and cooling as a service, right? They own the asset. That has challenges. It means that you're not having a capex spend, you're having an opex spend. So there's accounting issues and whatnot, but the principles are there. The supply chain is starting to take care of that. We've seen it with carpets where to name two carpet companies, show contractors and interface, they have take back schemes, right? There's the Australian, what is it, the flooring as a they're coming up with a program called ResiLoop, uh, which is trying to have that as a take-back scheme for flooring. So these elements are happening. Slowly, a supply chain is recognizing that they have an opportunity to take back the elements that were provided at the beginning of life, and that that also has benefit from a corporate responsibility question, which is great, but also those are materials that they can reuse in their own processes to develop new products. So they're seeing the value benefit aspect to it. That's, it's a, again, small mind shift, and but we are seeing it. Uh, we're seeing that happen. And we're also seeing some good examples in Australia of circularity principles through adaptive reuse. What are some of the examples you'd like to spotlight there? The easiest one to talk to, and I think uh, at a certain point, everyone's going to be sick and tired of how everyone will keep pointing to it, but it's just such an incredible achievement, which is what they call the world's first upcycled office tower, right? Which is key quarter here in Sydney. That used to be the old AMP Capitol building. It was effectively stripped down and modified, but the structure was not pulled down. The building itself, most of the building is um, that exists now, the revised version, is was part of the existing building that hung around. They added additional elements to it. Uh, that was a huge upfront uh, carbon savings, which is great. They kept all of the structure of the building. The building, if I recall correctly, was around 60 years old, give or take, or something like that. And now they've effectively extended the lifetime of the building by another 34 years. 
It's an excellent development. It's, it's just a, a, an incredible achievement. From an engineering perspective, you have to, fee, to take down the building, uh, revamp it, rework it. They did some changes to the slabs, for example, to have stairs go through the building and have um, more views into the building, but they still kept pretty much the entire thing standing. I think it's a fantastic example of adaptive reuse. Uh, probably, I would say, one of the largest ones in the world. So we've talked about material usage and we've talked about the supply chain and we've talked about the built environment. What about construction companies or developers? What are you seeing there in terms of innovative ways for introducing circular principles? That's a great question. There's been a number of developers that have been attempting to introduce more circular products in their developments. And look, we've seen things like increased reuse of recycled content in different products and materials and, and whatnot. But one of my favorite ones is actually something that Mervac has actually done. Uh, so Mervac, they're a big construction company, for those of you who don't know, they do residential apartments. And what they did was they worked with the UNSW University uh, with the Smart Center. And they took recycled plastic waste and they did a bunch of things like creating artworks, ceramic tiles for kitchens, and just repurposing a lot of elements, like it's to create products that, that were essentially became materials, right? So in the case, I think it was in a building uh, called Pavilions, if I recall, it was an apartment. Uh, they took waste materials and they created some beautifully gorgeous looking tiles that they use in the kitchens. Uh, and so it was a good example of taking just genuine waste that, and turning it into something that became a wildly different product that it, it wasn't a down cycle situation, right? And I think that's, that's what's really valuable about what Mervac and UNSW have done. It was a, a situation where they managed to create more value out of waste than what existed. And that's really the whole concept of the circular economy. Uh, they took plastic bottles, they took ceramics, they took things that were really just at that point done. And somehow they created a new product that, you know, it's when you go and look at it, uh, it is competitive with against anything that might be in any tile uh, co uh, from any sort of tile company in the world. The fact that they were able to not just recycle the product, but upcycle it and actually turn value out of waste is quite meaningful. And I think that's also shifting the way that a lot of people are thinking about the problem of waste. Uh, it turns out now waste is not something that you just let go or, or disappear, but rather it has inherent value. Again, that's the idea of the circular economy. Don't think of waste as waste. Think of those materials as resources and think about how you can reuse those resources and create more value out of them. It's very easy to recycle and downcycle things. It's really hard to upcycle things. And that's what say this work that Mervac has done and also what was done in Key Tower, they essentially created more value out of something that was technically at the end of life. And that's really powerful. So we talked before about how challenging it can be for people to generate a business case for circularity for the projects that they're involved with. So what sort of suggestions would you have in that regard to strengthen up the business case? Uh, great Great question. And I think that's an aspect that everyone's broadly grappling with right now. When people talk about the difficulty of generating a business case for circularity, it is true. Uh, the big element about circularity, just like, say, green building certification was 20 years ago, is that it's not apparent who the beneficiary is of what you're doing. So why would you do it, right? Why would Mervac invest time and effort in creating and turning trash into great ceramic tiles? Why would the developers of the key tower 
uh, at the time AMP Capital, why would they go to the extent of going through that effort? And I think the answer is that there's no such thing as a silver bullet, unfortunately, but there are many silver bullets. So if you're a product manufacturer, uh, for example, thinking about circular economy will bring you benefits because you're able to identify uh, how to recover from the market elements that you might be able to reuse in your supply chain. So if you are, say, a tile manufacturer, you're no longer dictated by ceramics that might be coming in or virgin ceramic materials that might be coming in that you'll then turn into great tiles. All of a sudden, you now have a much larger supply chain of potential materials. That's what Interface does, right? Like they've gone and done, uh, say, fishing nets, and now they turn those into carpets. That idea of being able to understand that you have the opportunities to create value out of things that used to be waste and that you, the amount of materials that you have as a source is now bigger is very powerful. And that's worthwhile exploring, especially as the cost for virgin resources continue to go up. And they will. There's no way around it. I think in terms of if you're, say, a building owner, Having consideration for how to extend the lifetime of a building is a no-brainer. Uh, there are cost benefits that you can extrapolate out of reusing existing assets. Uh, instead of taking them all the way down and uh, building a new building from scratch, if there's an opportunity for you to reuse a lot of those materials that are already there that have carbon in them that you can reuse essentially or that prevent you from having to bring in other uh, virgin materials, that is actually an attractive proposition for investors. They are asking about these things. There's also the question about how do you work with or are able to, say, uh, identify fit-outs, right? Like how, what, what's the value of you as a fit-out donor in trying to have a fit-out that can be restored or, or redone? And let's say you're, for argument's sake, a bank company or, or a, a mass retailer, right? A, you are able to sell that view that you are being responsible to your customers, and that's helpful, and that has value. You're also likely able to then extend the lifetime of your fit-outs because you're not having to redo them from scratch. You can take advantage of the adaptability that you introduce within them. And so the refreshment cycle doesn't have to be a one-off that occurs every once in a while, but rather can happen at multiple times if you do this correctly. And that has a benefit because you're able to manage how the store is laid out rather than having a very fixed sort of setup. So there are opportunities everywhere. You just have to think about, again, not simply saying I'm going to be circular, but rather to think about how can make the idea of circularity work for me. And that's when, again, the economy bit really becomes powerful. It is about understanding that the circular economy framework is trying to generate value for you. So you have to work with it rather than trying to force it. And that's what I would recommend to people. No silver bullet, but many big opportunities. I think continuing to your question about what is the business case for thinking circular, I also want to pose a different question. And it's a very similar question to the one that we would have been asked say, in 2010, something like that, which was, why should we care about carbon or why should we care about sustainability or energy efficient buildings? And the thing is, the move to circularity is real. Governments are asking for this. There are governments already in Europe, for example, that are placing requirements on buildings to be more circular. Uh, we are seeing investors already driving the question of and asking what amount of, say, virgin resources are you consuming, especially for product manufacturers more than anything else. But that question is going to move to buildings as well. Uh, there's already uh, conversations about setting uh, limits, for example, on 
the amount of emissions that you put in in terms of if you're a developer. So reusing assets makes sense. You save a lot of emissions by reusing those assets. Uh, governments are probably going to start looking at uh, the fact that they have to deal with waste. So how do you reduce the amount of waste? And the way to do that is to become more circular. Uh, how are you going to uh, also create a more sustainable supply chain? Uh, the, the COVID was a good example of supply chains genuinely breaking down. So governments and businesses are starting to look for more local domestic supply chains. And it turns out there's already a lot of materials happening, inflows and outflows happening at any given point in our economy. So how do you tap into the outflows? How do you tap into the things that people thought had no end of life? And so I mentioned these, these elements because that's what the circular mindset brings to you. But that's what reality is going to look like next decade, right? So 2010s, we were thinking, should we reduce carbon emissions? Or, you know, we, we GBCA, were pushing you to reduce carbon emissions, but we really didn't have very clear net zero targets. Right now, we think of the net zero economy as something that is obvious and in retrospect. Up until 2015, there was no net zero target that we had all agreed to. The question you have to ask yourself is in how do I create a business case to become more circular, but rather how do I become more circular because I will have no choice in a decade's time. So start thinking from that perspective more than anything else. So that's a really great point. So in Australia, the Australian Green Building Council, how do you intend to partner with stakeholders on this circularity journey? It is a great question. Uh, so we already released a few, about a year ago, two years ago now, I want to say, we released a circular economy discussion paper, and we wanted to find out what the state of the Australian built environment was in its thinking on circularity. What we found was that the uh, sector was very much preoccupied with the idea of addressing resource consumption and waste in particular. There was a lot of conversations about how to manage waste and how to recover waste or reuse waste or recycle waste. But there wasn't a lot of thinking going into what happens on the front of that conversation, right? When I create something new, how do I enable the recoverability in 5, 10, 60 years, whatever the answer might be? So that's where we decided to spend a bit more time. We introduced a circular economy leadership challenge, which is what we call our innovation kind of pathway in the rating tools to try and encourage and recognize activities that are more circular. That was introduced in Green Star Buildings. And with the fit-outs rating tool, we are looking to introduce a new category in the rating system explicitly around circularity. And that's very exciting, right? We'll be in a situation where we can say uh, that we're going to actively drive, and the vision for Green Star fit-outs in particular is to actively drive the built environment to be 100% circular. It's the first time we've tried to do something as comprehensive and drastic as that in the fit-out space. We're willing to go for the challenge, and we think industry is ready for the challenge. And that's a very exciting opportunity. It sure is. So what do you see as the role of policy versus, say, business action in that journey towards circularity? You know, someone just asked me that uh, literally uh, about, I want to say a month ago, exactly that, not necessarily on circularity, I should say, but the principle holds. It was more about uh, carbon neutrality. And I'll say to you the same thing that I said to them, which I think exemplifies the philosophy of what GBCA tries to do. Policy works on the idea that what we should be doing is the minimum we should do right? You should, by minimum, not have your house folds down, right? That's the thinking, the logical thinking. Uh, you should use, as a minimum, not too much energy. Not the least amount of energy that you can use, but not too much energy. But for government to be able to act then on circularity, 
it needs to know that as a minimum, we can act on circularity. It is really hard for government to introduce legislation when nothing has ever happened. So our job and the role of the business community is to show that this is a direction of travel that we all want to do. So that government can then say, great, everyone can now do it. And we see that over and over again. We saw it in carbon. We've seen it in electrification. We're now seeing governments starting to take up a lot of these aspects. And we think this and up from carbon as well, they're from carbon reductions. And we're going to be seeing this in circularity. So for us to be able to be successful and drive and create a fully circular economy, we have to show that we can do it. And that's going to lead to a much better outcome. So, George, with all the advancement in the conversation, as you've indicated, within the industry, across the supply chain, the developers, the built environment itself, and the work that the World Green Building Council and the Australian Green Building Council are doing, when you think future, what is it that excites you the most? When I think future, what I think about is we tend to think of buildings as things that exist, and they exist across a long time. Right. Any time that you build anything, at worst, it'll be there for 10 years right, or seven years with a fit out. And that time aspect makes a lot of the conversation particularly interesting. When I think about the future in circularity, when I think about that long lead time of buildings, I think about the opportunities that are now available to us to actively affect the future. We usually don't think about it when we build things that way, but buildings really are city shapers. They shape how we behave, they shape how we consume, they shape our health, they shape our energy consumption, they shape everything we do. And so bringing circularity now into that space means that we can now start actively thinking and say, can we get to a point where we're able to drive full circularity through the built environment and through the actions that we make or the products that we supply or the products that we install and design decisions, et cetera, and do so in a way that we're affecting that future and that we can get to that future in, in say, 2050 and say, the built environment is fully circular. That's the goal we're aiming for. That's a goal that World GBC is aiming for. That's the world that we, GBCA, would like to aim for. And I do actually think that industry can get to that point. That's the work that we'll all be doing this decade. So that next decade becomes a decade of circular action, or ideally early, right? But that's definitely happening. And we are able to say, like, we are hitting those targets. Where we get to 2050, we can safely say, we no longer think about building something that will then not be recovered. That the idea being so absurd as to why would you even warrant that as a consideration? That mindset focus is what I'm looking forward to. And it really makes me excited to think that we are at a stage where we can influence that line of thinking. Well, George, thank you very much for joining us today. And certainly we're excited to support the World Green Building Council's work for the Circularity Built Environment Playbook. Very important work for the sector. Thank you. And we look forward to talking with you again. Thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by VinZero. VinZero help the AEC and manufacturing industries keep pace with digital change and achieve their technological and sustainability leadership goals. VinZero is a company that cares about creating and building a better world. Together, we are working with industry and environmental experts, providing forums and platforms through our VinZero Think community to create conversations that matter to our future generations. We invite you to join in the conversation and participate in our Think community. Like and subscribe to Think Future to stay up to date with the latest innovations and conversations as we take AEC and manufacturing around the world closer to zero. You can download our podcasts 
at vinzero.com or from your favourite podcast platform. From Vinzero Think Future, thanks for listening.